Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something on the early part of the playoffs, and I thought a good time to do that was after every series had finished its game two, and so I wanted to talk to one of my friends and talented writer, freelancer Jared Dubin, who also hosts Locked on Knicks. We talk a little Knicks towards the end of this, and we go through all eight series, you know, a little bit of insight on each one and kind of where we see it going, where it's been so far, and really enjoyed the conversation. For those of you who like timestamps, those should be in the descriptions for this episode, and also it's brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek, my personal go-to for both buying and selling tickets, and if you go to the settings tab and enter the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, they will give you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So the conversation runs about an hour 20. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So we have eight different series that are all going on, and I thought it'd be fun to give you the first choice on what has stood out to you in terms of a series or development so far. Hmm. What stood out the most? Well, do you want us to start with OKC Houston? I mean, obviously we can. Game two was significantly different than game one. The thing that stood out to me, and this is part of something that that I wrote that should be going up, I guess, by the time we finish recording this podcast, Oklahoma City basically junked its entire pick-and-roll coverage from game one and came back with something completely different in game two. You know, obviously, Russ is the big story, and I'm sure we can talk about that as well, but... You know, what they wanted to do in game one for a lot of the game was to switch those James Harden pick and rolls. And the thing about that is it completely neutralizes the effect of using Andre Robertson on James Harden. You know, once you switch, he's no longer on Harden. And Harden struggled with it a little bit early in game one, had a turnover, uh, shot an air ball over both Taj and Steven Adams. But later in the game, and especially against Ennis Cantor, he just destroyed those switches. So what they came back with in game two was. When Nene and Clint Capella were setting the screen, then it was you know Stephen Adams or Taj Gibson dropping back toward the paint. When Ryan Anderson was setting the screen, they blitzed to try to get the ball out of Harden's hands and counted on the fact that they could recover before, Harden, before Anderson could get up a three. And when Ariza or Beverly was setting the screen, they had Oladipo or Westbrook or whoever else it was just meet Harden at the level of the screen so it looked like a switch, but then they just allowed Robertson to get back and I thought that that worked much better for them. You know, it kept them in the game until Westbrook shot them out of it in the fourth. They also ran a much more cogent rotation overall. You know, gave gave minutes to Doug McDermott, who I thought played well, less to Samaje Kristen. Norris Cole was actually inactive, and I thought that was an important adjustment because those players provide so little value relative to what Billy Donovan wants to do out there. They're on the smaller side, and maybe he believes in them as defenders, but you have all that stuff running together. And they also used Dennis Canner properly, didn't really have him on the four when Harden was on the four, which was an adjustment that I advocated for. But there's still room for improvement there. The biggest issue that I had was when Steven Adams got in foul trouble, the most logical guy there is not Canner or they use Sabonis at points. It's Tosh Gibson. And Tosh Gibson only played 20 minutes in game two. So it's not like they were worried about overworking him. Yeah, and he was, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, at one point he was like plus 17 in 18 minutes or something like that. And, you know, they were great when he was on the floor. He even early in the game was getting a bunch of post-ups uh, and, and scoring off of them. 
And, you know, in addition to not using Cantor when Harden was on the floor, which they didn't do until the fourth in that stretch that you mentioned, they also matched Robertson's minutes with Harden. So every second that Harden was on the floor, Robertson was too. And that went along with their strategy of not switching those screens. So they tried as hard as possible to make sure that Hart, that Robertson stayed on Harden. And the few times they did switch, that was like why Harden got 20 freaking free throws. He just paraded himself into the paint whenever he wanted, and those guys couldn't do anything but foul. Well, and that's something that Nate and I have talked about before, is that Harden, and this is also a benefit of covering him for a couple playoff series, is that, generally speaking, the guy who Hart, who guards Harden primarily doesn't bite on his stuff as much because they're so used to it. He, he's so active. He is, you know, you know exactly what he's going to, not exactly what he's going to do, but kind of what his approach is. It's when there's a switch. It's when he gets past that guy that you get into the problems with foul trouble. And it looked like it was the same basic story in game two, where it was everybody else that was fouling James Harden. And Robertson was pretty clean, not perfectly clean, but pretty clean. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's also the detriment of switching a big guy who isn't as fleet of foot as Adams onto him. You know, you saw, I think, in the Golden State series last year that Adams and and Ibaka could hang with guards off the dribble for a couple of seconds. But, you know, even someone like Taj Gibson, who I thought did a good job of it in game one, um, did not do quite as good a job of it in game two. And Sabonis and Cantor just got destroyed when they did it. We should probably get to Russell Westbrook. I'm of a couple different minds about this series overall, but Game 2 is a good microcosm of it. So he was spectacular in that first half. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that it was it was underappreciated. He was pretty efficient offensively. He was still shaky defensively. He often is. But in the second half, what happened was they started basically a, the, a point that stood out. So the, I think it was in the early fourth quarter. Clint Capella was playing great defense. He was a, an active rim protector. And, and Westbrook started holding back from driving and finishing because he had a lot of trouble finishing in the paint in this game. So he just started shooting jump shots. And Russell Westbrook shooting jump shots is a very risky proposition. There are times that it works out. But if that's a primary part of his diet, it's not going to work as well as if it's an ancillary part. And they, they just couldn't sustain the efficiency that had kept them in the game and actually given them a, a double-digit lead for a fair portion of the game earlier on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a good result for the defense if, if Westbrook is taking a jumper, whether he makes it or misses it, because that means that he didn't get all the way to the rim um, you know, for a much easier shot or create an easy shot and a dump-off for somebody else. Uh, if you would describe an, an ideal result for a Thunder possession from the defense's perspective, and Westbrook has to be the one shooting it, then certainly a jumper is what you would pick over literally anything else. Uh, I thought he found as perfect a balance as I've seen from him in a really long time. Uh, In the first half and through a bunch of the third quarter as well, the first four or five minutes. And then after that, it was like the, the game just changed on a dime. It was like the it bore no resemblance to what came before that. I looked it up last night. It was like three or four minutes into the third quarter. He had something like 27 and 10 on like 14 shots. And then, you know, for the rest of the game, he took like 27 shots or something crazy like that. You know, obviously he wound up with with 51, I think, uh, for the game. But a a bunch of that was free throws as well. And and even then, you know, 26, 24 points on like 26 shot attempts is is crazy. And, And I do think that people tried to make things... 
and, and this always happens with the Westbrook discussion. And I was talking to uh, to Tim Bontemps about this last night. It's everyone has one of two takes: either he has to do this, there's no other option for Oklahoma City, he has to carry the entire offense by himself, or this is a disaster. He's a crazy ball hog, and why the hell doesn't he just pass more often? And it's so much more complicated than that. And, and I hate how everything gets boiled down. Like even last night, you know, by the fourth quarter, people were like, oh, my God, this Westbrook performance is a disaster. And, and like you mentioned, for the first half and, again, a part of the third quarter as well, he was incredible. Like that was one of the best games I had ever seen him play for like 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden it was completely different. That's a great point. And I think that it's also a hybrid between the two in terms of when the other guys get opportunities when the other guys play. Because there were a few times where McDermott early on, he found him and he got open shots and he made those shots. And then later on, he was looking him off a little bit too much. And it's true that the Thunder's supporting cast is very limited and inconsistent offensively. And the inconsistency is a big part of it. I mean, Victor Oladipo has been just bad offensively for both these games. I don't think he's been great defensively either. So you have Oladipo, who could be, you know, a stabilizing force, a guy they paid $84 million to. Adams, you know, he he has his moments, but he's not. you're not going to just, like, dump the ball into him and let him go to work very often, sometimes periodically. And then a lot of the other players they have are, are defense-heavy, and so that's why, at moments, for long stretches, part of the OKC crunch time success has been that they've embraced... Westbrook being able to create this efficient enough offense by himself to go with defensive players at the other spot. So you have all that that runs together where Westbrook's singularity makes some of the other success possible. Even though he's not a good defender, he allows them to put better defenders on the floor. But when it spirals down because his shot is not as reliable, it just gets hard to maintain. Yeah, the the thing about last night is... You know, obviously it was amped up to a slightly greater degree, but their, you know, third and fourth quarter offense was not that much different than what they did during the regular season. No. It just so happened that, that Westbrook, you know, missed like all of those shots instead of, you know, he was terrific during the clutch, uh, you know, throughout the regular season, like probably the best player in the league in clutch situations throughout the regular season. And he was just a disaster in that situation last night. So it's, you know, it's, it's a process over results thing. Like you may think that isn't a good process in general, and it just happened to work during the regular season, uh, you know, over the, the large scale. And this was sort of an inevitable result of a bad process. I think that's a valid opinion, but certainly it did work for them, you know, throughout the year. And then with the supporting casting, I don't know if it's so much that Westbrook's supporting cast isn't good, as that it's filled with one-way players. You know, you have right. defenders who are zeros offensively and offensive players who are zeros defensively. Like, if you combined Robertson and McDermott, that would be a really good player. But unfortunately, you have to either play both of them or one of them. And in both cases, you have a zero on one end of the floor or the other. It's like, you know... Adams is a two-way player, but not an elite player at either end. Oladipo is a two-way player, but not an elite player at either end. You know, mostly a pretty good player on both ends. Beyond that, it's a lot of one-way guys. Like, Taj Gibson is maybe their third or fourth best offensive player, and, and that's not really tenable. No, 
No, it wasn't terrible for the Bulls either. No. But we'll talk about them and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But something else I wanted to mention, and I don't want to get into a whole MVP discussion, but I, I think this point is is important to make, which is I supported Russell Westbrook for most valuable player, and his it wasn't the entirety of, of it or even the strongest argument, but his clutch performance was certainly a part of why I supported him. And I fully understood that it was not repeatable, that it was not necessarily representative, and that it probably wouldn't work in the playoffs. However, the way that the NBA has chosen to phrase their highest award is most valuable player, not most outstanding player, not best player. And if you make 100% of insane shots for an 80-game period, it doesn't matter if it's sustainable or not. You still provided that value. So even if it was unsustainable, it still counts. I I definitely agree with that. Um, for the record, I went with James Harden for MVP. You know, despite that clutch performance, you know, my generally criteria is like the player that provided the most positive value towards winning in the regular season. Um, you know, and that's determined by a whole mess of things. I just felt that Harden slightly outweighed Westbrook by like. One percent or something like that through the regular season. Yeah, it was bru- it was brutally close. Oh, it was. And look, no one has to sell Russell Westbrook to me. He is my favorite player. I invented less, let Westbrook be Westbrook. I just felt that James Harden was like very little bit better throughout the regular season. I certainly don't hate Westbrook or whatever Oklahoma State fans are going to say, but I do want to make this point because I think it's really important. Nothing that happens in the playoffs proves who deserves regular season MVP. It's the regular season MVP. Like, (laughs) I saw people before the playoffs started like, oh, man, you know, what if Westbrook gets the MVP two months after the Rockets beat the the Thunder in the playoffs? Well, like, who cares? Doesn't matter. It's a regular season award. Why does what happens in the playoffs matter? That or that argument always bothers me. I just wanted to get that in there. Yeah, I agree with that, too. And as somebody who was not around because I wasn't covering the team then, but the whole Dirk Nowitzki MVP thing. You know, if you it's a regular season award. If you earn it, you earn it. If you don't, you don't. And it doesn't justify or validate it, especially because when it's this close, sometimes you're going to be looking at things that aren't repeatable, that aren't that aren't just a part of it. And you know that that's an element of the story. It's part of what makes it fun. Yes, absolutely. So I think the place that I want to go after this is the to me the most surprising series, which is Boston going down two nothing to the Bulls and. I've struggled with the Celtics for a long time, partially because I thought that people were overvaluing. At first, it was overvaluing their draft assets, then it was overvaluing their current team. And now, I think what happened with me was I was so not sold on the Bulls that I, I leaned a little bit more heavily on the Celtics than I was comfortable with. And while it's certainly still possible that they win this series, I mean, they have enough talent and Chicago is maddeningly inconsistent. Chicago has been the better team for the first two games. Absolutely. And this is a series I couldn't possibly have been more wrong about. I think I said like immediately before the first game started that I don't see it because the Bulls are just bad. (laughs) And I couldn't see a way it was a competitive series. So, you know, great job, Dubin. Uh, You're an idiot. But I think that the way the Bulls have beaten the Celtics is an entirely predictable way for the Celtics to lose. Like the, the two concerns about the Celtics going into the playoffs are that they can't rebound and they've been getting absolutely hammered on the board, specifically by Robin Lopez, and that 
they don't have offense beyond Isaiah Thomas, and their offense has been completely shut down beyond Isaiah Thomas, who has been you know pretty good, but not you know the incredible force he was during the regular season. So you know even though I, I still think the Bulls aren't very good, the way they're beating the Celtics you know fits in with what you would expect from a team that would beat the Celtics. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I think that. The Bulls are just such an interesting team because I also think that they've you talked about how they have the right the right personnel and all that to be, to beat them. I think they've executed far better than I ever expected because the execution was not a part of their MO during the regular season. Yes, absolutely. Like I wouldn't have expected this Bulls team to be the one to do the things that you need to do to beat the Celtics, but they are doing those things and that is very strange because they were just maddeningly inconsistent throughout the regular season. I, I don't think they were an elite offensive rebounding team. They were a pretty good one. Um, you well, know. they were, So they were elite in the early part of the year, and then when they traded Taj Gibson, right. they dropped far, far off that pace. So overall, they looked pretty good, but it was really heavily heavily weighted for a team that was not their final result. And when they moved Miritich in, I mean, there's this thing, I've talked about it in terms of Kristaps Porzingis, where generally speaking, with a, a jump shooting four, you have to choose between offensive rebounding and three-point shooting, and there, there's a great argument for both. So Chicago leaned more one direction than the, than the other, but they've been able to do it. And I mean, Robin Lopez has been absolutely spectacular through two games. Yeah, he is, you know, one of my favorite guys in the league. He's just, he's just a good player. You know, he's not a, a new age space center. He's not one of those like, you know, DeAndre Jordan, Tyson Chandler kind of centers. He's not an old school center that you throw the ball into. Uh, you know, I, I said this about Marcin Gortat as well. He sort of fits that mold also, although a little more offensive leaning than Lopez's, you know, defensive leaning. But they're just good players. They set really good screens. They crash the glass. You know, Lopez protects the rim really well. Gortat is a is a terrific pick and roll player, so it's a little bit different. And we'll we'll talk about that later on, I'm sure as well. But it's it's interesting to see that kind of player succeed when there are all these center archetypes uh, around the league now, and he doesn't fit any of them, and he just still finds a way to be good. And he's been really really good in these early games, just straight up dominating Al Horford. Yeah, that's been a big surprise too. Al Horford, max player for four years. And Robin has always had this strength. He's been on a series of different teams, but he's always had the strength of being a great box out guy. And I think that's a part of the story of their offensive rebounding is that he is able to occupy other players. And I think in the first two games, Chicago's rebound rate when he was on the floor was somewhere around 50%, which is absolutely insane. Yeah. And that's something that's been true throughout his career, you know, even though he doesn't have great individual rebounding numbers, his teams have consistently been better at rebounding while he's on the floor. Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously, it, it feels hard to do. And I feel like this is just an avenue for both of us to look stupid again, after both predicting the Celtics were going to do well in the series. Where do you see it going from here? Yeah, I still think the Celtics should win because... This Bulls thing came out of nowhere, and even though it is the way to beat the Celtics, I know how inconsistent the Bulls are, and I just feel like they can't keep it up, you know? And and I am fully open to looking really stupid with that take. My stance right now is that I think Boston has to win both games in Chicago 
in order to do this because winning all three of the last three, especially considering Chicago looked like the better team, that just seems like too hall too tall a hill to climb. So if they can take both these in Chicago, which I totally believe is possible, I, I put the odds. Nate and I talked about this on Dunked On right after that game. And I put the odds at 15 to 20% that Boston wins the series. I still stand with that. I think that's about right. But that is better than you would normally expect from a team that lost their first two games at home. Right. I think, I can't remember who put it out on Twitter, but it was something like 7% of teams that went down 0-2 at home uh, wound up winning the series, which is you know very low, but I don't think lower than you would expect. I think the Celtics have a better chance than that. And when I say I think they're still going to win, I'm saying that while acknowledging that the odds heavily favor the Bulls. Yeah, I think that's I think that's certainly a good th- a good way of, of kind of putting it now. And I guess considering I'm thinking about that series right now, I'm actually working on my pieces for the athletic before and after we're recording this. Going to the Warriors series, I think that I mean, game one was just an exhibition of how well CJ McCollum in particular and Lillard to a lesser degree can just create their own looks. But game two without Durant, without Livingston, without Barnes showed the Warriors defensive ceiling, even if the Blazers helped make that happen. Yeah, uh, that was unbelievable. The Blazers wound up, I believe, with like a 74 offensive rating for the game, which is absurd and like almost yeah, I unheard think it was, of. I think, it was, I think it was 72 in the first three quarters. Yeah, I put that out there on Twitter. It was, it was 72.0, which is legitimately insane it's two-thirds of the average offensive rating in the league this season which is and it's it's, it's three quarters of the worst offensive rating in the league so i mean you think about you think about like where the where the you know the sixers have the sixers have struggled offensively where the orlando magic were this year and then just be like oh yeah you're gonna get 75 percent of that and it's the portland trailblazers a team that's a very talented offensive group yeah. Um, you know, well, I less talented that, without Nurkic. But. Right. You know, I thought that the way they played it made sense. Like, it seemed like they basically came into the series openly acknowledging that they cannot stop the Warriors. So they were going to basically ape the Rockets' expected strategy two rounds early. And they were just going to go small, shoot a ton of threes, and, and hope that that carried them over to win the series. It's extremely unlikely, but it's their best possible chance. And when CJ and Dame went off in game one, you know, they hung close. But when the Warriors stepped up the defense in game two, it sort of worked in the first half when they went crazy small with uh, with Aminu and Harkless at center for most of the time. I looked it up earlier. They spent 20 of the 48 minutes of the game with Aminu or Harkless at center. But in the second half, and I can't remember who pointed this out on Twitter, they basically just gave Aminu and Harkless the Tony Allen treatment, and that was the end of them having any space to operate offensively. And that was a continuation of what they did last year. Yes. Last year, the Warriors' philosophy was, let's make everything hard for their players that can actually score, and then let's make everybody else beat us. And last year, it was not only those guys, but the sheer indifference for Mason Plumlee took away his ability to playmake. Basically, they turned Mason Plumlee into a driver and finisher at the rim, and he wasn't good at that. Now he's gone, and he's replaced now with empty space because Nurkic is out. And right there, um, I've talked about this with this, with a series of people, it, 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 and I haven't talked about it with you. Knowing what we know right now in this series, obviously we don't have the specific intel in terms of how he's feeling and everything like that. 
would how how would you feel about bringing Nurkic back in this series? <sighs> I wouldn't do it. I think that, and I wouldn't. I don't think I would bring Durant back either. Um, if I'm the Warriors, Portland's chances of winning this series were already so slim. You know, he has basically a, a stress injury in his leg, which you know, as we've seen with guys like Bradley Beal, can linger and can recur. And I just don't think it's worth it. You know, their chances were already so small, even with Nurkic on the floor. And their chances are even smaller now, down 0-2. And if they want Nurkic to be a part of their team beyond this year, I think it's more important that he fully heal than that they lose this series 4-1 or 4-2 instead of 4-0. I just don't see the benefit in bringing him back. Is that where you landed to? Right. And... One other point, which I've made on other podcasts, but want to make on this one, is that the first offseason after a player joins a new team or is in a new system, that can be a new coach, whatever, is an incredibly important one, if, especially for a young guy in terms of their development, because they can work in that offseason training regimen with the knowledge of what their role is and what they're expected to do. Yeah. So this summer is a chance for Nurkic to change his body, to change his game, to fit what Terry Stotts wants. And if he comes back for a low value situation where, you know, maybe, oh, maybe he comes back and they pull an extra game in this series, which they're still almost definitely going to lose. If he comes back for that, and there's even a 10% chance of re-injuring it by coming back at that point, you lose probably a month or two months of that development time for no good reason. Yes, agreed. Is there anything else for you on this series, or do you want to move on? Yeah, I think we can move on. It's a carbon copy of last year's series, but the Warriors are better and the Blazers are worse. And I feel like that yeah, sort of sums Yeah, I think that's about up. right. So I think the the series that I've had the most fun watching has been Raptors-Bucks. That's what I was Because <laughs> both, teams, both teams are talented, both, and because there are a lot of tactical adjustments and, and shifts that are going on. I still don't have a, a complete feel for who's going to win this series, but I think that we're going to learn a lot more tonight. We're recording this on Thursday for Game 3. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think certainly it's been the most fun series for me to watch as well. I really like the way... Both teams' defenses force the other team to play offense. It's something that's been very noticeable, I think, through both games. You know, they're both forcing the other offense to constantly adjust. You know, the way the Bucks swarmed defensively, um, you know, made the Raptors break out a couple new offensive strategies in Game 2, you know, after they struggled so badly in Game 1. And, you know, the Raptors were such a good defensive team over the second half of the season after they traded for Ibaka and P.J. Tucker. And that has forced the Bucks to do two different things. You know, one, either their ball movement has been, like, ping, ping, pinging around the perimeter, or they figured out a way to get Giannis switched into a favorable matchup. And, and both of those things are re really healthy for their offense. And I've liked the way that both teams have sort of challenged each other on each side of the floor. I thought one of the big wrinkles that was a part of Game 2 was how Toronto at attacked the swarming defense of Milwaukee by shorting the pick and roll, which is a great way of countering it. So basically what that means is bringing another guy over to the action. So instead of trying to feed the ball back into the roll man, you feed it to that other guy and then do it back. The, the most prominent example of shorting the pick and roll right now might be, at least for me, the Warriors, because the Warriors do it for JaVale McGee constantly. Yeah, they and hunt the lob beep, beep. like crazy with, yeah. with Draymond. And, 
And Toronto is doing it in kind of a similar thing, but just not doing it as much for the lob. And they, they had a few different times where you can make that pass. It's much easier. And then the typical form of shorting the pick and roll is that you then pass it to the Roman, but you can also just create off of that because you're getting kind of an odd opportunity that the other team generally, if they put good personnel on that swarm on that trap, they won't have as many guys available to handle the rest of the defense. Right. That that guy who gets the short pass has an opportunity to beat a rotating defense if he doesn't throw that pass right to the roll man. And they attacked it in a couple different ways. You know, they had, uh, I believe it was P.J. Tucker hit the roll man in the first half when it was uh, Jakob Pertl, and that worked really well. Uh, in the second half, Patrick Patterson did it a couple times with Serge Ibaka, but there were also a couple times where you know, they swung it either to Lowry or DeRozan, and then they got another pick and roll so that they had to swarm and then immediately encounter another pick and roll. And they weren't able to swarm that one also because guys were, you know, rotating across the floor. There was another way they, they attacked it where a couple times Lowry sort of strung out his dribble when they, they trapped him up high. He strung it out all the way toward the sideline. And once the big man sort of turned and ran away, Lowry just drove right at him. And he got a couple layups out of that, and that was a, a really good way for them to attack it also. And I think this goes back to a piece Ben Falk actually did, which I thought was really good, of, and the idea that playing the ag- aggressiveness of Milwaukee's system does work really well, but there are very specific counters to it that create opportunities, and I feel like that's eventually going to give Toronto the advantage, but Toronto's late-game offense was and is so conservative, so bland, so broken down, that if the games stay close, I think Milwaukee certainly has a chance to sneak an extra game or two, and that could be enough to swing the series. Yeah, I mean, even in game two, basically what it turned on was Brogdon and Della Vadova both missed wide-open threes, and DeRozan and Lowry both hit heavily contested twos, and that was the game right there uh, in the last three or four minutes. If those shots flipped the other way, we're maybe not even talking about how Toronto countered uh, the Milwaukee defense, and we're talking about them being down 0-2 uh, instead of their usual 1-1 after they lose the opening game of a series. So is your instinct that, that Toronto's going to end up pulling it out, or do you know? Or do you, I, I mean, you don't, I know you don't know, but do you have confidence? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I have a moderate degree of confidence, I guess, that the Raptors may have, you know, quote-unquote, figured it out. In game two, you know, a lot of times against Milwaukee, it just takes you a little bit before you figure out the ways that your particular offense can find those good shots against their defense. And uh, I I think we'll know fairly early in game three if the Raptors figured it out or if they just got a couple good looks. And um, that's going to be the key to the series to me. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way of thinking about it. Well, considering we're close to the halfway point here, I wanted to take some time to talk about SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a great way and my personal go-to for both buying and selling tickets. And for those of you who are interested in basketball, and hopefully you live close enough to teams that are still in the playoffs, whether that be for a short time or for a long time, SeatGeek is a great way to go and see them play. They are an aggregator, which means that you don't have to go searching around for lots of different ticket sites. It can be the Wild West out there, and so you can go to one place. That saves you a lot of time. You can be confident that they have the listings that you're looking for. And also, since they give you a deal score, it can give you an even narrower, simpler pool to look at in terms of the best seats for the best price. So they can't tell you if you want 
$200 seats or if you want nosebleeds or whatever, depending on what market, depending on what event. But they can tell you these are the best options, and then you can go through those depending on what your own preferences are. And I think that SeatGeek does a great job of running through those different priorities at the same time. And so that should save you time and save you money. And another way that it can save you money is by going through Real GM. So if you download the SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and it's a free app, and you go under the settings tab, there is an enter a promo code. You enter the promo code RealGM, just like Real GM Radio, the name of this podcast, Real GM, the name of the site I write for, R-E-A-L-G-M. They will give you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So you buy the tickets to an event you are going to go to anyway, whether that be a sporting event, concert, theater, whatever else. And you get $20 and you tell them you came from us. So you get a discount, you get $20 that you wouldn't have had before, and you support the show. It's a great way to do it. Really do appreciate it. SeatGeek, Real GM promo code. And now, since we're at the halfway point, Jared, I'm going to toss it to you. Um, You want to stay in the East and go to Cleveland, Indiana? We can do that. <laughs> I think the story of this series, which is not a big surprise, is that Indiana just can't stop Cleveland reliably enough. And even if Cleveland's defense is shaky or bad, they still have enough scoring to win. Yeah, this is something that I used to say about Mike Woodson, when he was coaching the Knicks, where he was dealt a bad hand and has played it about as poorly as possible. And I think that you can say that of Nate McMillan in this series. Indiana was not likely to stop Cleveland's offense anyway, but he has come out with, I think, just about the worst possible defensive plan for defending the Cavs with Indiana's roster. They are consistently switching Jeff Teague and Monte Ellis and C.J. Miles onto LeBron. And that is, it's, it's untenable. I mean, you cannot do that, period. It, you just can't. Like, it's, it's, it's an abomination what they're doing with this. And, and that's before we get to the fact that Teague can't stay in front of Kyrie Irving. They haven't figured out how to stop these Kevin Love duckins. Uh, Tristan Thompson is killing them on the offensive glass. Their defensive strategy is a disaster. And I can't believe after the way that it didn't work in game one, they came out with the exact same thing in game two. Like, that's just, that's a joke to me. Plus, to make matters worse, Cleveland kind of beat them in different ways despite having the same system, which which basically poked further holes in something that was already full of holes. Jeff Teague was okay in game one, but a lot of it was also Kyrie Irving missing shots he normally makes. And then he absolutely torched Teague in game two. Right, and that was... The okayness in game one was when he was simply guarding Kyrie. LeBron and Love, to a, a, a lesser extent, dominated him on those switches, whether it was getting their own baskets or drawing uh, help on the drive and then kicking out to somebody else. This is a no-chance series for Indiana. It was, they were sort of drawing dead to begin with, but they've made it, I think, even less of a chance that they're going to win through the way that they're playing defense. And if if Cleveland's defense wasn't such a disaster also, this would be a, a joke of a series right now. One thing that, that Nate McMillan does deserve credit for is that he marginalized Aaron Brooks in Game 2 because Brooks had no—there was no point to having him on the floor because they were running so much through Lance. And, you know, Lance has actually been yeah. strangely efficient offensively through two games. But I still can't believe— the way that they handled that the last cup the last offensive possession in game one because there's this this basic idea of of kind of thinking about a, a, a circumstance and it's 
what is this guy adding? You know, so in a late game circumstance, you know, you can pretty much play offense, defense. So they knew that they wanted Paul George to have the ball. Mm-hmm. So Lance being on the floor doesn't make any sense because he doesn't space the floor. His best thing that he can do is he can create with the ball in his hands. He's not going to set the screen. So basically what they did is so so they came out the first time and LeBron, they put LeBron intelligently on, on Lance and then LeBron just helped off Paul George and Paul George is not a good enough passer to just instantly go, Oh, there's Lance. He's open. Give it to, give it to Lance. Like that's, that's a hard thing, especially because LeBron in particular, but also, I think at that point it was JR that was guarding Paul George's the default position. Those guys were also both pretty tall. So you get you get into that circumstance where you just can't see over the thicket. And so you had that and then Indiana called a timeout. And so you're thinking, "Oh, okay, they they saw what was going on here. They're going to fix it." Nope. Just like what happened with game 1 and game 2 in terms of their defensive scheme, Nate McMillan both kept Lance Stevenson out there and didn't involve him in the primary action. LeBron goes over to help. Then he ends up kicking the ball over to CJ Miles, never gets it back. Paul George is mad about that. That's a separate question. Miles gets up a decent shot, but the whole process didn't make any sense. Right. Um, I'm right there with you. That was essentially how they got the ball out of George's hands was because Lance was on the floor. And, you know, we saw that screenshot of Lance standing wide open under the basket. He was not wide open. There were three guys between him and the ball, and it would have been a 30-foot pass. you got to get it past LeBron, Jr. and Tristan Thompson. Uh, like you said, Paul George is not an elite-level passer. Like, if that's LeBron, yeah, that guy's open and that's a basket. But that's not happening with Paul George. And, and I think that that was a little bit, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but that was, I guess, misleading. Misleading? Yeah. Yeah, and then the other part of that is the idea of pass speed. So let's say Paul George had theoretically saw him and could do it. It probably would have been a high arcing pass, and that would have given some of the other players that were still kind of around his area enough time to recover. Right. And Lance isn't so good at finishing that the ball is going to get there. And that's also, since we're talking, since I brought up pass speed, that's a part of what makes LeBron so special. Yes. Is that LeBron, kind of like an NFL quarterback, can pass a guy open because the ball gets there faster than it does with almost anybody else. Yeah, that's something that that James Jones has talked about a bunch of times, where you think you're in a position where you can't get a pass from LeBron, but his vision is so good and his you know passing skills so good, and the fact that the ball just travels so much faster from him than it does from a you know a normal person, um, you actually are open even though it doesn't look like it. And you know if LeBron's in position to make that pass, you know it's a one-handed whip pass off the dribble before anybody realizes that the guy under the basket is even open. You know if it's Paul George, he probably has to gather. You know he's moving to the the balls in his left hand, so he has to bring it probably up over his head to throw the pass. And there's so much more wasted motion than there would be if it was someone like LeBron or, you know, I can't even think who else, like maybe Harden or Steph that, that could make that pass, you know, one-handed lefty off the dribble rather than having to bring it up, you know, over their head or to their opposite hand before making the, the pass through the paint through three guys. It's, it's just not something that is possible for most people. I wouldn't say necessarily that this series has confirmed my idea of what's going to happen in the East playoffs in terms of the Cavs, but this this series serves as a reminder of just how hard this team is to defend. Mm-hmm. And they will face better defensive teams, more specifically in the second round, whoever it is, they're going to be better defensively than the Pacers have been. But 
I'm not sure that those teams will be so much better that they can really slow this team down. They just have to hope that they can slow them down enough so that they can dominate on offense and still kind of squeak it out. Right. The uh, the beginning of second quarter lineups have been just as unguardable as you would think. Uh, you know, the one that's with Channing Fry, Kyle Korver, <laughs> and Kevin Love, and Darren Williams. It is not easy to guard those lineups. Like, literally every time they put Fry in a side pick and pop, he is wide open for three. Like, you wouldn't believe how open he is. And, you know, that's obviously super tough. You don't want to leave LeBron because that's, you know, asking to die. You can't help off a Kevin Love. You can't help off a Kyle Korver. Even Darren Williams stashed in the opposite corner. Like, the help just has to come from so far away that, and then, you know, LeBron's going to hit that pass across the corner. If you even do that, then, you know, they'll hit you with a hammer play. It's impossible to guard those lineups. And you got to be able to, like you said, it's it's more about slowing them down than stopping them because, look, this this Pacers team that isn't good offensively is, you know, sort of scoring a bunch, not necessarily whenever they want, but in enough situations to where, you know, they've been in both games and a better offensive team, you know, and I think that applies to both Toronto and Milwaukee. And then, you know, later in the playoffs, as you get to, you know, I guess not the Bulls, but Washington, Atlanta and Boston, I think are all better offensively than Indiana. That's going to test the Cavs defense too. And we really haven't seen them dial it up to where we've seen them in previous playoff appearances. One other short thing I want to talk about here, just because I feel like I, I talk about Paul George's free agency in almost, or in almost every podcast I do for Real Jam Radio, but it's important. And the reason why it's important now is because he's probably getting a, a better sense now, in case he didn't have this before, and he probably did, of how hard it's going to be for the Pacers to get from where they are right now to being competitive for even making a conference finals because they don't have a ton of assets. They have some cap space, not a ton. They even spent some of that on Lance. They have okay draft picks, and then they have a lot of money tied up in guys that are you know not perfect fits, and if they're going to pay Jeff Teague, it's going to go on top of that. So assuming that's something he cares about, I think, to me, that would push him further away. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. It's also showing, you know, Miles Turner, I think we all have very high hopes for him. I think he's going to be very good. This series is also showing you, I think, how far away he is. Um, Tristan Thompson is dominating the glass. Turner is not really ready yet to anchor a defense as, you know, the, the lone big guy back there. He makes a ton of awesome defensive plays that look great. He doesn't have, like, the solidity down yet, and that's expected. You know, he's super young, and it could take him a couple more years to get to that place. And I think that that's something that that shows George how, you know, they're not as close as they need to be yet for him to still be in his prime prime while they're going to be competitive. You know, they're probably a few years away from Turner being as ready as he needs to be to be George's, like, true running mate. And I think from Paul George's comments in this series after both games where he's, like, you know, calling out teammates all over the place – he seems like he's just ready to be gone. Like, he's like, get me the hell out of here. He also turns 27 in a couple weeks, and we don't know how much longer we're going to see prime Paul George. I, th- I think that he'll age okay. You know, I worry a little bit because he hasn't, you know, he's improved skill-wise. He's, you know, legitimate on the fringe of all NBA, and that's without his defense being as good as it was earlier in his career. But the threshold between being where he is now and being, you know, like a, a like a, a third or fourth best player on a great team is not that big. 
I would agree with that. Like, if he drops off 10 to 15%, all of a sudden he's not best guy on a great team level. Right, and so to me, when you are at that threshold, you want to, and you have control over your destiny, which he does to a point, you know, he'll be, he has the opportunity to become a free agent after next season. You want to try to find somebody who can be better than you. And if you have the pride to do that, then then it's a great thing to pull off. There are a few different opportunities where he could have that. We don't need to talk about all those now, but that is certainly the way that I would be thinking about it if I were him. And he's not going to have am- amazing, amazing options, especially if he's not committed, if he's not committal to re-signing with the Celtics, but certainly better things than where the Pacers look to be in two, three years. Right. Um, you know, the thing about, finding someone that could be better than him. You know, the hot George destination is the Lakers. And I don't really see somebody there that's going to be better than Paul George. I just wanted to throw that one out there. Right. And unless they get the number one pick this year and Marco Fultz, even if it's him, I, I'm a big fan of Fultz. I don't think that it's far from being a definite thing that he's going to be, you know, an all-star and all-NBA guy either. And so the easiest way to actually do that would be through free agency, but we don't know if he's going to make it all the way there or if any team, especially considering all the terrible, terrible money the Lakers have on their books, if if any team is going to be able to bring him in along with somebody else who's really good. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, when you're in that sort of situation, it's uh, the options get limited pretty quick, uh, you know, especially if you're trying to get yourself to a team like a Teams that have the cap space to sign outright superstars are not often the best teams. You know, it takes a a crazy confluence of events for them to be able to have the kind of cap space that it takes to get, uh, you know, a a Paul George or, you know, like the Spurs for LaMarcus Aldridge or the Warriors for Kevin Durant. You know, it's it's rare that the, the teams that are in position already to contend for a title have the chance to add a max player. And I think it'll be more rare in the next couple of years as these bigger contracts take up space on the books, you know, as opposed to Well, and as the and as the caps not rising. Right. You know, like part of what part of what happened with the with the Spurs and the Warriors was that it was a rising cap and they had a lot of guys on their books. So the con the cap escalated faster than their contracts. That's not going to happen for a while. I mean, the the estimates now is that it's gonna it's gonna jump next year. It's gonna jump to like one one, but then it's probably gonna stick in that area, which means that any money most teams spend this summer affects it next summer. And also the CBA, for various reasons, they made cap space a little bit harder to come by by raising minimum salaries, by raising certain cap holds, and all those sorts of things. And so that's gonna be that's gonna mean mean it's even more challenging to bring in multiple high end players in the same off season, which is not something the Warriors or the Spurs did, but it's something that other teams have tried to do before, Miami most notably. Right. That makes sense. I think that's that's it for me on Cleveland, Indiana, yeah. if you want to go to the next well, series. Yeah, yeah let, let's move on to one that we can do quickly to kind of get back to keeping pace. San Antonio, Memphis, as much as David Fisdale's rant was entertaining and engaging, I don't think that Memphis got really worked by the refs in that game, too. The, they weren't generating that type of contact, and the Spurs are just better. So, you know, maybe it leads to a five-game series instead of a four-game series. I'm not saying his comments, but just the fire and everything else like that. But we know where this is going. Yeah, uh, we certainly do. One of the biggest keys to the playoffs is it's forcing your opponents to do uncomfortable stuff, uh, you know, whether that's offensively or defensively. And the Grizzlies are, are great. They're so much fun. 
I personally love them because they remind me of the teams that I grew up with, the 90s Knicks, and, and that's why I say they're fun. I, I know that's probably not an opinion shared by most people, even though, you know, the grit grind stuff is fun. But their defense is really good, but it's not the kind of defense that forces you to take anybody off the floor. And their offense is not good, you know, somewhere between not good and average. And they actually get guys played off the floor, whether it's Tony Allen or somebody else. As solid and as rugged and as whatever else you want to say they are, they don't force their opponents into any uncomfortable situations. And that's something that is not going to lead to a lot of playoff wins, Um, you know, especially when you go against a team like the Spurs, who they do force you into uncomfortable situations a lot. Um, You know, even in this current state where they're not as, I guess, flowy as they were a few years ago. And that's that's sort of it right there. Like the the Spurs can make the Grizzlies do stuff that they don't necessarily want to do. And the Grizzlies can't do the opposite. And that's going to lead to a quick series. Yeah. The only other thing I'll add is that I think imposing will is also pertinent on the offensive end. Memphis has talent. I mean, Connolly and Gasol had both had wonderful first quarters of game one, but they can't sustain that, especially against a good defense. And San Antonio has been one of the best defenses in the league this year, amazingly considering their personnel. Yeah. And And, um, just to, to touch on that quickly before we move on, switching Danny Green onto Mike Conley was the key to that. You know, he was absolutely in the first quarter of game one. Conley was four for four, 10 points, four assists. He went one for 10, three points, three assists the rest of the game. Um, you know, he was good again in game two, but because Green was sort of hounding him all night, LaMarcus and Kawhi could basically just guard space and bother Gasol and bother Zebo and just let Harrison and Selden and Ennis and whoever else just, you know, shoot whatever they wanted. And that sort of strangled the rest of the Memphis offense. Yeah. I, I think we can move on from that. It was a short segment, but I feel like we don't need to talk too much about that series. And we'll move on to the team that I think has to be in the most fortunate circumstance. I'm not saying they're going to, you know, they're going to win everything or anything crazy like that. But the Washington Wizards kind of stumbled. They they found plutonium by accident, ended up in the four seed and which we knew kind of ahead of time. But then what happened in a series of events was they got the Hawks in the first round then they got the Celtics as the one instead of the Cavs, and then the Celtics lost two games against the Bulls. So now they're sitting there saying, okay, we have a 2-0 lead, looking at a Chicago team that we can absolutely beat for a shot to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, after the first quarter, I guess, maybe even the first two quarters of Game 1, it didn't look like they were so lucky. Uh, you know, their their offense, That's true. Their offense was uh, really not good in the first half of Game 1. And they couldn't stop fouling on the other end. Then all of a sudden, they stopped fouling. They started getting rebounds. They started getting turnovers. And they gave the ball to John Wall and just said, make stuff happen. And boy, has he made a ton of stuff happen. Him pushing the ball against this Atlanta team on the break has been basically all the Wizards need. Uh, And Beal's been great. Markeith Morris was great in Game 1. I know he was in foul trouble in Game 2. But really, they haven't needed more than just giving the ball to Wall and letting him go. And part of the reason that's true is just because Atlanta's offense, starters versus starters, just doesn't really have much of a place to go. They're, they've bounced around their starting lineup a little bit, but 
Schroeder is inconsistent at creating for himself and others. He went one for eight from three because Washington realized they can just concede that shot and he'll take it too often and he'll miss it too often. And then Millsap has been, you know, he's been all right. He got to the line an absolute ton. He was part of what made game two an absolute slog. But Dwight Howard, they bounced around the other. Torian Prince has been all right, but Torian Prince probably needs to be your fifth best offensive player as a starter right now. You know, he could be better a year or two from now. I think he could be your fourth or maybe even third best offensive player in a successful team. But he's a rookie. You know, he's still figuring things out. And then they used Tim Hardaway as an opportunity there. But one of the challenges of using Tim Hardaway Jr., a player you're very familiar with, in these circumstances is that I don't trust him defensively. And Washington plays three perimeter guys that you actually have to pay attention to. And even if Otto Porter, all you have to do is really stick on him. That's still a challenge for a lot of defensive players. And so it's also something to consider in terms of Chicago and all this stuff moving forward, assuming they advance. But Washington by having three capable perimeter guys in their starting lineup poses a problem that very, very few other teams in the East, Cleveland is another one, actually forced the other teams to handle. Yeah, that was something that I actually wrote about earlier in the year when I was discussing, you know, the Celtics playoff chances, you know, because of their defense, you look at the other top teams in the East, only Toronto really provides them a place to hide Isaiah defensively. You know, you can't have him guard John Wall, you can't have him guard Brad Beal, you can't have him guard Otto Porter. You can't have him guard Kyrie, you can't have him guard LeBron, and even if he guards J.R. Smith, J.R. will not be bothered by Isaiah closing out on him from three. J.R. hasn't shot well, but all of a sudden you put someone on him that has no chance of touching his shot, maybe he sees the basket a little bit better. It's sort of the same for Atlanta. You know, they they don't have, I mean, Schroeder is, you know, a, a pretty good defender. I don't think he's quite as good as uh, as necessarily his reputation. I don't know why Tabo didn't play in game one, considering he played in game two. Um, you know, if, if he was healthy enough to play, he probably should have played. And then you have Hardaway out there. They need him offensively because otherwise they don't have enough space. He's not really tenable uh, against good perimeter players on defense. And uh, I think he's been obviously significantly better with Atlanta than he was with the Knicks. I think he's going to get paid this summer because of his offensive exploits. But I think on balance, he's still probably a negative player, you know, even if only slightly so. You know, he's basically an average offensive player and a bad defender. And. That's not something you can have when you have two-way players at all three perimeter positions on the other team. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that Atlanta is hopefully getting the shot to the system that they need to figure out that this needs to be a very different team next year than it is right now if they want to be something else long-term. I mean, if they want to be a fringe playoff team for a couple more years, they can certainly do that, especially because it looks to me like Dwight Howard is a better regular season guy than playoffs, which was not true necessarily before. I thought he was a wonderful playoff guy when he was in Orlando, but Father Time is undefeated for a reason, and he has looked shaky, if not worse, in his pick-and-roll coverages this playoffs. Some of that is just John Wall making guys look bad, especially the Wall-Gortat pick-and-roll. But it is something worth considering moving forward, and I think that opens the door for them looking to make offers, at least, to listen to offers for him this summer. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think it makes sense. And I think they were sort of going that way when they traded Corver in the middle of the season, so yeah, but then, and then they and then they turned back. Right, and I think get, the reason they, I, I, guess I think the reason they didn't get a Millsap I think the reason, offer they liked right away, and then all of a sudden they started winning again. And it was like, all right, I guess we got to stick with this now. 
Well, and it's also having one of having your coach, your head coach is one of your key decision makers in terms of personnel is that whenever things start to indicate, like start to turn towards, hey, we could actually be good coaches, not only because they're fundamentally optimistic, but because they think short term because that's what their lives are. They go in that direction. I mean, if if Atlanta had a, a I mean, they have different decision makers in their front office outside of Budenholzer, but I think if they had a more autonomous GM, like let's say Danny Ferry was still there. I think they would have traded Millsap anyway. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And it's sort of like a, uh, a much lesser version of what happened with Toronto when they traded Rudy Gay and they were like, we're going to blow this up. They were talking about Kyle Lowry with the Knicks. They were talking about a whole bunch of other trades. They didn't get the offers they wanted right away, so they just kept playing. And then they became really good. Uh, with the Hawks, they were getting ready to trade everybody, and then they just became a little bit better than they were before. And they were like, all right, that works. And then they just kept going. And it's, I think it's clear, you know, especially in this series, you know, with the way John Wall is sort of toying with them and pick and roll, they're not at the level that they need to be and not necessarily close to it either. Is there anything that you're looking forward to in the rest of this series? I, I certainly think Atlanta could take a game or two. They have enough talent. Their defensive ceiling is high enough. But it's hard for me to imagine them winning four out of five, which is what they now have to do to win the series. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess what I'm looking forward to is if Atlanta does win a game, what are the defensive moves that get them there? And can they be replicated by whoever Washington's next opponent is? That's, I guess, what's most interesting to me down the stretch of the series. So I think we can move on to the last series. We only have one left, uh, which has been strange so far, though I think Game 2 went back to form, which is Jazz Clippers. Rudy Gobert hurt 11 seconds into Game 1, hyperextended knee plus bone bruise. I, I haven't heard anything in terms of a specific timeline, but that makes sense because you have to wait for the bone bruise to heal before you really see where things are, wait for the swelling to go down. So all those kind of things, are, are you have to wait on that. But... I think Game 2, after the surprising performance in Game 1, provided an example of how this series is going to go while Gobert is out. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, You know, eventually Chris Paul sort of just decided that the game was over. And, you know, obviously it stayed close. But the way he was controlling the whole floor made it such that Utah had to become a vastly better offensive team than they actually are in order to win. And that just wasn't going to happen with the way DeAndre and, and Bamute were defending, uh, specifically against Gordon Hayward. Uh, Utah can do some things to gain situational advantages. Like when they bring in Joe Johnson at the four, that's been a really good look for them. Uh, he can take Blake off the dribble. He can take Spates off the dribble. Uh, he can t- certainly take Paul Pierce off the dribble. Um, but their best offensive guys, Hayward and Hill, they ha- they have really good defenders going against them, you know, in, in, in Chris and Bahamute. And it's, it's made things really difficult for the Jazz on offense. And then on the other end, favors, I think, when they've gone super small has been pretty good on defense. But all of the other times, like when he's been directly involved in the pick and roll, it's been really tough for him to, to stay with Chris and guard DJ at the same time. And that's just not workable like they they need Rudy back there in order to cut off access to the paint this series is also a really tough one for favors not only because he's still making his way back from all of his maladies but because Chris Paul DeAndre Jordan 
is one of the single hardest pick and rolls in the entire league to defend. So it's not like you're getting thrown in there with something that's more tenable. It's doing that, and then congratulations if you make it through that series. Of course, they might have Gobert back by that point. You get the Warriors. Right. So, you know, either way, you're getting a real stress test for the Jazz. And I really want to see what Gordon Hayward does the rest of the series. Mute is a very talented defender, and his combination of length and strength is a big problem for Hayward, just like he is for a lot of guys, but I think specifically there. And there will be some, inevitably, who say, oh, well, if he struggles in this series, that proves that he's not a max guy, and, you know, whether he stays in Utah or goes somewhere else, that that team is getting a bad bill of goods. I don't think that's necessarily true, but his ability to transcend or to outperform that sort of a station would certainly be a nice feather in his cap. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's difficult for anyone against Bamute. You know, he's like you said, he has the strength and length that you know helps him guard wings really well. He also has the flexibility to guard. Like he guarded point guards a lot of the year. You know, especially when Chris was out. That, and that was something they did when Chris was healthy too. You know, just to, to save Chris from having to have the toughest defensive matchup on on certain nights. So there's no shame in struggling a little bit with Bamute. You know, it's going to happen even to the best of guys. But certainly, if he can figure out a way to really get going, that would you know, like you said, be a feather in his cap. And look, I don't I don't think Utah has no chance to win this series. Um, you know, they're right in it. It's it's one one. I don't think they're necessarily. The favorite, like, I don't think that's true. Certainly not if Rudy doesn't come back at all. But, you know, the, the Clippers, it's not like they dominated at any point in these two games. You know, even during the stretch where Chris kind of put the game away at the end of game two, the Jazz were right in it. So, you know, they're, they're there and they can take it, I think. They can. I would caution a little bit, though, that part of the reason they were able to stay close is that Chris Paul missed a bunch of time due to foul trouble. Mm -hmm. If he plays a higher portion of that game, it's kind of like what happened in the second game of Wizards, Wizards, I was going to say Hornets, Wizards Hawks, was that the starters versus starters was not as was was a more prominent example than everything else. But still, Chris Paul can get in foul trouble. There are various things that can happen with that. We're going to learn a lot more about this series by games three and four. I'm, I'm really excited for the weekend in that, in that one because I'm excited to see where this goes, but I do feel like with or without Gobert, we're going to have a better understanding of just like what road the Jazz have to go through. Like if they, if they split these or if they happen to win both, then we're sitting there going, okay, you know, if they get Gobert back, they can do it. But if they lose both, then they're basically done. Right. And, and I think, you know, that's certainly true for the smaller picture of this series in particular. But I think the Jazz are missing out on a big-picture opportunity here, too, because one of the things that you know we haven't really seen with the Jazz is, like, what can happen with this core? And they have, you know, two big free agents this summer, and we just don't know a lot about their fully healthy team. You know, they only played, I think it was 13 games together all season. Yeah, it's and, like a, like 140 minutes or right. something like that. You know, they wound up winning 51 games, which is incredible. And, you know, a, a credit to, you know, to Rudy and Hayward, who were the two guys that were healthy the whole season, and a credit to Quinn Snyder as well. But if you're going to spend big money on keeping this team together, it would be nice to know that, like, when they play together, it works. And, you know, it, it worked super well in those 13 games. I think they went 11-2. and two. But it's 13 games. And, you know, even the last couple of years – they've had guys hurt and haven't been able to play with their real team. And this was going to be a really good test for them, seeing this core together healthy in the playoffs against the Clippers team 
that you know has been you know even though they haven't been to the conference finals they have been sort of one of the inner circle contenders over the last few years or so they just haven't broken through and it was going to be interesting to see what Utah looked like against that squad and now you know they're they're putting up a fight without Rudy Gobert but they're going to have Rudy Gobert on the floor you know in the future and it's it sucks for them that they're not going to get to see what their actual team looks like maybe for the rest of the series you know we don't know when Gobert is going to come back and you know it would have been nice for them to be able to see really what it is that they have there and that could inform their decisions going forward and now they might have to make decisions without you know the best possible information that's true and what ratchets up the uncertainty in terms of the jazz and their future is that the the front office's willingness to pay is not the only variable here both hill and hayward are unrestricted free agents for the first time in their careers they could just choose to go somewhere else and if one of them leaves it makes it more likely that the other one leaves because the Jazz are not going to be super competitive with one of those guys and not both. Right. They're still good. You know, they're still a good team. I think I think if you lose one of Hill or Hayward, they're still a playoff team. But they're, they're not like a, you know, a, a tr- an intriguing, like, outside title contender in any in any near-term thing. Especially because they don't, they don't have the draft, the high-end draft assets to really make their way back in there. So they have to deal with that, too. You know, so they can't, if they play hardball with George Hill... George Hill could just go somewhere else. Right. He doesn't. They don't have the the ability to, of match rights or something else like that on him or on Hayward. And I always talk about the third contract. I wrote a piece for Real GM about it years ago. That it's where you really find out what a player wants. You know, do they want? Do they want to win? Do they want to make the most money possible? And a lot of the best circumstances, you don't have to make those kind of choices. Think back. Durant's a good example of that. There are numerous, numerous examples of it. But we're going to see with both of those guys. If for the first time, really, what they want. And that puts more pressure on the Jazz because they don't know for sure that playing in Utah is, is what they desire. Right. And, it, I mean, it also, you know, they don't have workable replacements for those guys. You know, Exum hasn't been, you know, obviously had the, the major injury, and that's, you know, that's going to hamper anybody. He hasn't been necessarily what they thought he was going to be yet. You know, it's, he's still super young. And it's possible that he could get there, but I don't think he's ready to be, you know, their George Hill replacement next year. You know, you see that by the fact that he's not playing in the playoffs. And, you know, I love Rodney Hood. I think he's going to be very good. He is not ready to be their Gordon Hayward replacement. You know, you see that by the fact that they took off, not took off. They were already obviously good, but, you know, they were fully comfortable with sliding Ingles into the starting lineup and bringing Hood off the bench. So... You know, if if they lose one or both of those guys, it's their their ceiling as a team not only gets significantly lower, but their floor as a team does too. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, and we'll have to see where it goes. Definitely one of the teams I'm going to be following most intently. That's all eight series, but there certainly is one other thing that I want to talk about with you as the host of Locked On Knicks, and you do a great job with that. I, I think I'm just going to open the floor to you about what you think is going on and where it goes from here. Is is something happening with the Knicks? What happened? Things are always happening with the Knicks, Mr. Dubin. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, Phil Jackson, great, great uh, team president. Always, uh, anytime you can uh, purposely drive down the trade value of your players in your season-ending press conference, that's always good. Uh, if you want to bring back the point guard who, uh, you know, was sort of a disaster uh, in more ways than one on and off the floor, that's always a good idea. Uh, you know, if you can anger the future of the franchise, a 21-year-old 7'3 guy who is like an elite outside shooter, um, that's even better. You know, anytime you can combine all of those things and also force the players and coaches to run a system that 
none of them want to run and, you know, antagonize like everybody in the process and talk once a year about it. I think that's the best possible way to run a franchise and anybody that argues just doesn't get the triangle. God, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, I, the whole circumstance is just it's just crazy. I mean, so you have team president who gave that player that contract, including the no trade clause, trying to basically antagonize him into waiving it while also lowering his value, saying basically we'd be better without him and all that sort of stuff. And also, you so you see all that going on at the same time, and then the Porzingis thing and the triangle and you, the, the whole issue that he wanted to have Rambus be the coach, but then Dolan was willing to make Phil the, the president and was willing to give him a ton of money, but not willing to let him choose his coach is also in, completely crazy and is an underrated part of this whole insanity. And now, you know, we can see how so much of this isn't working, and yet they have a mutual option. And they both decide to, to hold hands as they go off into the canyon together. Yeah, um, look, James Dolan, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what more you could say. Like, exasperated sighing is, like, my default about the Knicks. I mean, I don't know why. It's like, oh, I, I gave him a five-year contract, and I said I wasn't going to interfere, so I have to honor that. Guess what? Picking up a two-year mutual option is interfering. You just said... This is the path that we want to be on, and we're going to keep going along that path. So great job, buddy. It's, it's standard operating procedure for the Knicks. They, un, until they get disabused themselves of the notion that they're somehow special and that they can do things differently than every other team that goes from bad to good, they're not going anywhere. And it's, it's going to be a long time before they figure things out. And, and I don't think that getting rid of any one person or any one system solves the problem. Firing Phil doesn't solve the Knicks. Trading Carmelo doesn't solve the Knicks. Not running the triangle doesn't solve the Knicks. The thing about the Knicks is that everyone tries to pinpoint the problem, and there is no the problem. There are like 50 the problems, and you can't just wave a wand and bring in a new savior and make things go away. You know, it's a step-by-step process. It's going to take a long time, no matter who's in charge, longer if certain guys are in charge, and maybe shorter if others are. But anyone that comes in with the idea that it's going to be quick or that they, you know, know the one thing that needs to happen that's going to bring them to where they want to go is wrong. And if anything has been proven by the last, you know, 15, 18 years of Knicks basketball, I think it's that. And um, they just don't seem to realize that or even want to. I agree with all of that. The one thing that I will say is that I do believe there is something special about the Knicks, but they haven't really ever used that except for when shortly when Donnie Walsh was there and they approached it for a short time of really going after going after space in 2010 and they cleared it for LeBron. And it didn't work out. You know, they got mellow. Then they spent a bunch of money on Amare. I think that an ideal GM for the Knicks would have to do, would have two responsibilities and this got so much harder based on how they spent last summer. One is they have to be able to convince Jim Dolan that it's okay to be to clear house and be bad for a year or two to to figure all this out to to get into the right place. And two, devote all of the resources that they have into getting ready for that like two or three year point down the line. This is exactly the same thing that the Brooklyn Nets should be doing. And the Nets have fewer assets to make it happen than the Knicks do because the Nets don't have their own pick this year or next year. And it's just pick a point in the future and say, okay, we're going for this. And then so you use your your high end moves. You're trying to 
clear space. You're trying to make responsible contracts. And then on the other end, you're trying to get to try and identify lower end guys that can be a part of that team, either through draft picks or through, you know, maybe you give a guy a little bit of extra money in the short term and then it either it descends or something else. And so you have them on a value contract. Then the Knicks have done a pretty good job at the second part of that, identifying guys. Aaron Gomez, I think is, is a nice piece of their future. Kuzminskis could be as well. Their European scouting department has done an absolutely fabulous job. And Porzingis, of course, should be. But they have never developed that as a cohesive philosophy. And I think that's the way to, to use the, to, to make the Knicks special, but they've never done it. Yeah, um, I, I guess I would amend it. And someone actually sent me an email about this last week. I can't remember the name. So I'm, I'm sorry for not giving credit. But there actually is one thing that makes the Knicks special. And it's that no matter how bad they are, fans are going to come to the games. That is just a fact. You know how we know that? We've seen it for 18 years. They've been a disaster, and it's a sellout every night. So you can't tell me if that, that if they were bad sort of on purpose instead of by accident, like that, that people would stop coming or that fans would tune out. It's just not true. So they, they do have the luxury of being able to sell, not like we're going to tank, but we're going to prioritize being good a few years down the line as opposed to acting like it's the end of the world if we don't make the playoffs this year. And I don't see how you could pick any path that is smarter than that right now. Uh, I've said this several times on several podcasts and in several pieces. To me, every move they make for the foreseeable future should be geared around what helps them be an inner circle contender for the entirety of Porzingis's prime. You know, from the time he's 24 or 25 until he's 32 or 33. That's their window as a real contender. And it's still three years away, basically. And that that gives them a bunch of runway to figure out what works and what doesn't. It gives them, you know, the leeway to, you know, be as good or as bad as they want in the interim. But any move that doesn't help that goal, to me, is a move they shouldn't be making. And, And any move that does is worth consideration. That would be my, my, I guess my rubric, I don't know what you want to call it, my criteria for every decision with the franchise for the foreseeable future. That's a great approach. I, I think that's a, a healthy way of looking at it. And I'm going to run at that with an idea. Somebody asked this during the Twitter NBA show to Nate and I, and I actually genuinely struggled with it, which is this. Let's say... Whoever gets the number one pick, originally this was phrased in terms of Boston, but it could be whoever. Would you trade Kristaps Porzingis for the number one overall pick if it was straight? If that was offered straight up, it's so tough. Look, emotionally, no. Intellectually, it's much more complicated. You know, you do get the benefit of two extra years of being on a rookie contract, but you also get there's no guarantee that whoever you take at number one is even going to be as good as Porzingis is now, let alone better than he could be in the future. It's also just, it's it's bad process to like run a potential star out of town because he doesn't like the triangle. Like Phil Jackson's not going to be here in two years. Like who gives a crap about this stupid offense? Like it's just, oh God, like I said, exasperated sighing. Um, I, I think I would fall on the side of no, but it's, worthy of consideration. Where did you land? I kind of landed on the idea of 
I would like it better if Phil wasn't their GM, but at the same point, then you get more into Porzingis having value, you know? So it's, it's a really complicated thing. I, I think I would need to watch more film on Fultz is a is a hedge, but at the same point, it's also true because I'm not sure yet at this point, which level of, of kind of draft prospect he is. Like, I, I don't think he's at the Anthony Davis, almost sure thing type of level. I don't think he's there. And if he's in that next group down, with, I'm trying to think of a good example there, of like, they're probably going to be a good pro, but you're not completely, completely sure. Wiggins? Yeah, Wiggins could be a good example of that. Yeah, and it's and it's probably higher than MB just because of the injuries. Right. It's, so, I'm trying yeah, to think I of think, number like, one picks that fit that criteria where like you're confident like, I think Towns I think Towns is a little I think Towns is a little bit too too high as well especially right. considering how it's worked out yeah I, I would agree with that um, I'm trying to think of who the number one picks were um, certainly higher than Anthony Bennett you know lower than like Kyrie Irving who else has gone number one well I might, I might put him about Kyrie actually I think that might be fair because Kyrie had the yeah. uncertainty with injuries I mean Kyrie's natural talent was higher but I think that Kyrie you know we we did have this uncertainty because he hadn't done it in college yeah. yeah, I'm I'm looking at the other number one picks. They've all been like, you know, to me, not necessarily 1000% sure things, but pretty damn close. Like, you know, Towns, Davis, Irving, Wall, Griffin, Rose, uh even Odin to most people was, you know, a sure thing slam dunk. The last guy that I like wasn't sure was going to be good, you know, other than Anthony Bennett, who I couldn't believe went number one was Borgnani, and he was in 2006 and I didn't know anything about him because he played in Italy. So, you know, you, you have to go back to, like, Bogut to find a guy who went number one and I wasn't, like, super sure was going to be very good. I really like Bogut, actually, but I, I wasn't sure. That, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, Bogut, Bogut's a fair one. I would say Kyrie is probably the closest, and it doesn't even have to be a number one pick. Like, I really like Nerlens, but Nerlens had a, had a little more uncertainty, I think, than Fultz does just because of his strength. And that was, God, that taking, but in some ways I I floated this idea before, and this might be the way to end it. I'm not sure that the Cavs get the Wiggins pick if Anthony Bennett isn't so terrible. So maybe it, it it is kind of one of those things where it all worked out and that kind of opened the door for Le, for LeBron coming back and everything else. And you could make an argument. I'm not sure that I would, but I think I would, that if they had drafted Nerlens Noel instead of Anthony Bennett, they would not have a championship right now. It's certainly possible. Like you said, you can make the argument. I don't know if I'd wind up buying the argument at the end of it, but you can make it. And, you know, to bring it full yeah, circle. I mean, and they were unlikely to get the Wiggins pick anyway, because I think they had like the eighth best odds yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So... That you can make that's another part where you can make that argument either way because it's like oh if they were a little bit better then they definitely wouldn't have gotten the number one pick or you know it, it, it's it's a whole it's a whole thing yeah but if they had Nerlens I mean that would have been awesome he'd be he'd be such a nice fit with where that team ended up yes um, to bring it back you know full circle to the idea you brought up is worthy of consideration sort of the same thing you can make the argument but I'm not sure if you would wind up getting me to buy the argument at the end of the day. So, and I wouldn't want to do it emotionally speaking. Like I said, it, it's it's just like you don't do that. Don't be that kind of team. Like, oh god, I just wish they could be a normal team for like a day. You know, that's that's. I would love if they. You know, I wouldn't love if they wound up you know on the same sort of treadmill thing. But if they just like operated like I don't know who's like a normal team. The Hawks? The Hawks, the Grizzlies, 
just be normal. Be the Jazz. I don't care. Be whoever it is. Pick the most boring team in the league, whoever you want to pick. Be them. I don't think there will, will ever have a better way to end it than that. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his writing all over the internet. He does great work for various different outlets. And you can also follow him on Twitter at jadubin 5 That's J-A-D-U-B-I-N and then the number five. Really enjoy talking with him. Have for a long time. He and I actually worked together on Mid-Level Exceptional, which was a salary cap blog on the the Hardwood Paroxysm web, which was a lot of fun. We did that for, for a little while. And... We'll see where all this goes. I, I really enjoyed talking with Jared. I'm guessing it'll depend on the timeline of when series end that next week's episode will be previewing the second round. I already have a guest lined up for that. I don't know if that's going to be next week's episode or if it's going to be the week after. It'll depend on if we see some game sevens or not. Either way, looking forward to doing that. And then moving forward, you know, I'm going to try to do a mix. I know some people like the, uh, I've called it the eliminated series that I've done before where I go in depth with a, a, the person for a single team. I love doing that. We'll just see if I have the time and the bandwidth to do so. Probably, if I'll probably pick my three or four favorite situations and go in depth on those, and then probably save the rest. But I'm always open to suggestion. It's an important part of why I enjoy doing Real Jam Radio. So your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny Larue NBA at gmail.com, at Danny Larue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will take the time to respond, but I hope to. And then also, if you want to support the show, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, download every episode, particularly great to do with Real Jam Radio because it doesn't come out at a consistent time. So you can really check that out. You can read my writing at The Athletic. You can read my writing, hopefully at Real GM and Sporting News soon, have a couple different things in the works, as it seems like I always do. And then you can also watch the Twitter NBA show and listen to Dunked On, the two projects I do with Nate Duncan. We are basically doing the Twitter NBA show a vast majority of days where the Warriors do not have a home game because when we're heading there, we can't really do it. And it's been a lot of fun. Mostly it's like watching the game with us. So you can follow Nate on Periscope at Nate Duncan NBA, and you can set up mobile words through Twitter as well. And it's just the two of us talking about talking about the games. We're going to be doing it. I'm headed over there in just a little bit. I'm recording this on Thursday, April 20th. And so, yeah, a lot of fun doing that. And then the other great, great way to support the show is by checking out our sponsors for this episode. That is SeatGeek. You can download the SeatGeek app. It's a great way, my personal way of buying and selling tickets since long before they were a sponsor. And then you input the promo code REALGM under the settings tab and you get a $20 rebate on your first order. Also tells them that you came from us. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8.
Check it out at surface.com slash surface pro eight.